Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. This is Mark 15, verses 37 through 41. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. You guys can be seated. And uh, I'm going to have Josh Manica come up here at this time. Um, He is going to be preaching to us from this passage today. So I'm going to pray for Josh and then we'll get started. God, you are so good to us. And I just confess that it's heavy to hear a message on your last moments on earth as we move into a season of Thanksgiving. And we admit we're grateful for your sacrifice. It's humbling, um, but we need a savior, God, and you are a great and gracious God who meets us in our brokenness and heals us. I just ask that you would strengthen Josh for the weight of these words. You would make him a faithful steward of the message of your redeeming sacrifice for all of us in this room. Help him to just be a conduit of your love and your grace and your mercy and help all the hearts in this room to be prepared to hear it and respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Yeah. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Um, as Jen said, my name is Josh Matica. I'm the Deacon of Communications here at Coram Deo Church, and I'm really grateful for every opportunity that I get to be in front of y'all to be sharing God's word, especially as we move into uh, the crucifixion, right? It's a heavy passage, um, but I- I'm I'm confident that the Spirit has something to reveal to all of us this morning. So a few years ago, right after um, we moved here with Billy and Hannah to help plant Corbeo Church, so this would have been in 2018, I believe, my wife and I, Catherine, had the very fortunate opportunity to travel to Italy and spend about eight days there with, uh, with some of our family. It was a really rich experience. I remember we got there a day earlier than everybody that we were traveling with and we just got to wander around the city of venice you know that's the one with no cars and all boats because you know it's slowly sinking into the ocean um but it was we got to just get lost in the alleys of venice we traveled to florence and we got to see some of the world's most celebrated works of art and then we traveled to rome we visited the Colosseum and the pantheon and during that time we just ate so much pasta and so much good pizza and that i mean it feels weird to remember like this really enriching cultural experience and all i can think of is like man that really good meal that i ate that one time in that basement restaurant um but yeah it, it was a really cool experience and one thing that i'm sure many of you may have heard about the country of italy is it's very very catholic um from saint mark's basilica to the duomo to the capuchin crypts which If you don't know what that is, remember a few weeks ago, Billy showed a weird picture of a bunch of skeletons and stuff up on the screen. Those are the Capuchin Crypts. Um, It feels like the whole of Italian history is just sort of bathed in the atmosphere of the historical church, right? Its artifacts, its traditions, um, its relics. 
And of course, much of this has to do with its direct vicinity to the Vatican, which is this kind of independent state. You know, that's where the Pope lives. Um, and it's just a short trip outside of the city of Rome. And on our trip, we visited the Vatican. And we actually, it was through a, a guided kind of tour company that had planned out everything for us. And we got a really cool opportunity that we got to visit the Vatican during the day. But then after hours, after they had closed everything down, we were allowed to go into the museum and to tour the Vatican kind of after everybody had gone home. Um, and part of that tour included a trip to the famous Sistine Chapel, which was painted by Michelangelo. And there's a picture of it up on the screen. Um, the, the, the Sistine Chapel, it's kind of this really tall but very narrow room. As you can see, there's a, there's a, um, a fresco painting all across the ceiling and all around you that you look. And this, in my opinion, notwithstanding what I said earlier about the pasta, uh, might have been the highlight of our entire trip, mostly because the specific tour guide that we had that night kind of allowed us a little bit of a special concession upon our trip. Generally, when you visit the Vatican Museum and you get to go through the Sistine Chapel, what they say is, hey, you got about five to ten minutes to take this in because there's so many people that are there. They want to they see everything. They want to see this famous work of art. So they're just like, hey, get in, kind of take it in, get out. Again, this was after hours, though. And so the worker that was with us that night said, okay, you know what? If y'all are respectful, if you follow the rules, you know, don't take flash photography because it would damage the paintings and all that. I'm going to allow you some extra time in this part that everybody wants to see. So we ended up spending about 45 minutes in the Sistine Chapel, just kind of staring at everything. You're not allowed to be super loud in there because just to be respectful. So it was just like this silence of taking in everything that was around us. Um, and you're taking in both like the, the skill and the artistic beauty of these paintings, but also kind of just the grand scale of it, like how long it took him to like paint this and like sit up there and just hand touch everything. If you know me at all, and I, and I know a lot of you and I've had these conversations, um, you'll know that I'm a big lover of art in, in, in just many forms. So this trip was kind of dominated by experiences like this, where even if not the Sistine Chapel, we were visiting museums and historical sites and just kind of taking in all of these amazing works of art, many of which were reflecting on the stories of scripture and specifically the death of Jesus. Because of course, like I said, this is a very Catholic country, so a lot of reflection happens around that. I vividly remember the night after we had this trip, um, I had a dream. And I'm not gonna get into dreams too much and about like what we believe like physiologically or spiritually dreams may mean. Um, but suffice it to say that we believe God is all powerful and he is all knowing and he is good and he can reveal himself in any way he wants to, including in dreams. Um, and that night, I, I feel like I kind of had a dream like that. I remember I was standing on kind of this, it wasn't a desert, it was like a, a kind of a cracked, you know, the cracked ground vistas that you see in, in movies sometimes. I could see the mountains in the background. The sky was somewhat overcast. And about 10 feet in front of me, uh, to borrow the lyrics from the old hymn, I saw an old rugged cross. And I remember I approached the cross and I looked at it. And in that moment, I knew kind of inherently, at least in the dream, that I was in the place of Jesus. Right? I had this understanding that, okay, I need to die to bring total redemption to the children of God, to the church of God. And I understood to the very fiber of my being that 
death would confirm the divine work of God. And it was scary, but like I said, I knew what it meant. I knew what would come from it. And I especially knew what would happen if I didn't do it. And I remember looking at the cross in this dream. And I remember considering that. And then I backed away. Um, I couldn't do it. Uh, even with the salvation of God's people on my shoulders, I could not bear the weight or the fear of dying and what that meant. And I remember waking up that next morning and my first thought was, only Jesus could have done that. The further I get from that moment in my life, the more I find myself kind of considering the ways that God was using that trip, that, that, that visit to Italy, um, and how he was working on my heart. Yes, I was being encouraged and enriched by these experiences that meant a lot to me, by eating good food and, and seeing good works of art, but I was also being challenged as God was revealing the truths of who he was to me in these good things and these works of art. God was encouraging me and challenging me, both in what he was putting right in front of my eyes and what he was doing behind the scenes in my heart. This morning, um, like I said earlier, we're, we're going to be coming to the end of the road that we've been traveling as we've been reading through the book of Mark. We're at the crucifixion, the execution of Jesus Christ at the hands of the religious elite and of the Roman state. Now, this is a very familiar story to us, right? We have a whole holiday that is based around it where we, where we talk about this stuff. Um, and I'm sure we've told ourselves the story. We've read it. We've rehearsed it a million times. And today I'm praying that we're going to be able to see this story with fresh eyes, both that we would get hopefully fresh insight from this story, yes, but also that we would be reminded of the things that we already know, the unshakable truths and glories of the gospel, that they would recapture us kind of in the way that when you were first saved, it was so meaningful to you that we would remember the weight of what is happening in this text. Specifically, today, we're going to be looking at how the glory of Jesus' crucifixion is planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and revealed by the Spirit. I'll say that again. We're going to look at how the glory of Jesus' crucifixion is planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and revealed by the Spirit. And before we dive back into the passage, I just want to make a quick note about Mark and kind of how he's writing at this point in Scripture. If you've been tracking with us, you may have noticed that Mark is not quite as reflective as some of the other Gospels. It's not this meditative telling of, you know, what is Jesus doing and why is he doing it and what does it say about who he is? And it's also not kind of this fact-by-fact, moment-by-moment historical document that maybe we might some of the, see some of the author, other Gospels being. Instead, Mark kind of zooms out and, and looks at this story from, to borrow kind of a cinematic phrase, like a docudrama. Like he's picking out highlights. It's almost, it's a highlight reel of Jesus's life in his ministry. He's showing us these memorable moments, but he's also emphasizing his humanity in these moments. Now, Mark's account of the crucifixion, which we're going to be reading through again today, uh, it doesn't necessarily stray from this style of writing. Throughout the passage, he's still kind of giving us just these glimpses of what's happening. He's not going like fact by fact and, and through everything. But I also want us to be aware of both what we're seeing in the text and also what Mark is not sharing. That may be kind of weird. I'll explain a little bit. Last week, Billy detailed a lot of the things that happened to Jesus before the crucifixion, right? The beatings, the humiliation, the scourging that he talked about, and, the, and like the, the brutal weapon that they used on him. In this 
passage. In this crucifixion, Mark doesn't really get into a lot of the details here. Instead, what you see is we get a few verses. You know, Jesus is led to the place of his crucifixion. And then it simply says, and they crucified him. No mention of the nails or the splintering wood on his flesh or the ripping of his clothes that would have reopened his wounds or the spear that went through his side that we saw from other accounts. And this isn't because these details are unimportant. They are vital importance, but rather because Mark's audience in this book, which would have been Gentile Christians in the Roman Empire, they would have been pretty familiar with what a crucifixion looked like, what, what was happening during that. Think back to the last time you went to a funeral or, or a wedding and when you're kind of digesting that, when you're explaining what happened to someone, right, you're not giving them like a minute-by-minute accounting of that event, you know. And then the bride walked up the aisle, and then the pastor talked for a little bit, and then they said their vows. Like, no, you expect those things to happen at a wedding. You expect those things to happen at these cultural events that we're all very familiar with. Um, these details are expected, and um, they're a little mundane. They're, they're regular. And we'll get into why those small details of the crucifixion are important here in a minute. What Mark does take the time to share, though, are kind of strange details. Things that wouldn't have been so commonplace. He does a little bit of both. And in doing this, he emphasizes the way that this event was very peculiar and strange, outside the ordinary from what a regular execution would be. Simon of Cyrene comes and carries Jesus' cross for him. The, The sign above his head reads, King of the Jews. He's crucified between two robbers. He's mocked and derided. He refuses kind of this drug-inducing wine that would have helped him kind of digest some of this pain. And these things are emphasized as noteworthy details. The point is, and I know I've talked a lot about kind of the background of this, I want us to start seeing that God is working in both the things that we can see and also the things that we're not seeing. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, uh, the, the verse, of course, notes that man looks on the outward appearance, Lord looks on, the Lord looks on the heart. We're very familiar with that verse. And while that's specifically applying to like motivations and the will of a, of a human heart, it does remind us that God sees things that we cannot, or maybe sometimes that we would rather not see and are not looking for. We often kind of just focus on the things that are right in front of us, but God is seeing the whole picture, and he's working through all of it. Today, we're going to be looking at three ways in which God is working both in the details and behind the scenes, revealing the glory of this horrifying but miraculous point in history. And the first thing we're going to look at is this. The glory of the crucifixion is found in the divine work of God the Father. Second, the glory of the crucifixion is accomplished through the persevering love of the Son. And third, the glory of the crucifixion is shared through the unexpected revelation of the Holy Spirit. I'll repeat that first point because that's what we're going to start with. The glory of the crucifixion is found in the divine work of God the Father or planned by God the Father. Let's return to our passage and examine this first point, how God reveals the glory of this crucifixion through this planned divine work. I'm going to read in verses uh, 21 through 32 again. And it's going to be up on the screen for you. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. 
those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked to one another, saying, He saved the others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So right away, I'm sure you'll notice that Mark's focus right here isn't so much what is happening to Jesus, but rather what's happening kind of around him, what, what the people around him are doing, what they're saying, what they're participating in. You know, Simon of Cyrene gets involved. Jesus is offered, like I said, this drug-like mixture of wine and, and myrrh that would have helped not kind of numb his senses. The sign over his head reads, King of the Jews, his garments are divided, the people mock him. Mark is describing all these little details that he knows is important. But like I mentioned earlier, not all of these things would have been so out of the ordinary for a Roman crucifixion. Jesus is crucified at this place called Golgotha. Sounds a little odd, but Mark notes that it's called place of a skull. And this term likely signifies that this was a place that was used for executions. People went here to die. Jesus was offered that, that kind of mixture, that drug, but that was also not uncommon to happen. That would have been something that they offered to a lot of people. Jesus certainly had detractors jeering him as he died. We know that he was rejected by many, but again, not uncommon at a public execution, especially when revolutionaries and rebels were being used as an example by the Roman Empire as to like, don't do this. Um, so why is it important that Mark is kind of taking note of all these things? I think the easy answer would be that, you know, these are narrative details that heighten this picture of suffering and horror that is taking place at the cross. And that's true. They are. Um, but what if we stepped a little deeper into the truth of God's word and saw what was happening underneath? And what we're going to see is that God's plan, this divine work that was set in place from before human history was even recorded, is coming to fruition in every single detail, both in what is being done at the cross but also in what is happening in these, these tiny little details. All across this portion of our passage, we see prophecies from the Old Testament are being fulfilled kind of left and right. Um, in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I love this, this statement by Jesus early in his ministry because it is revolutionary but in the way that it almost upends the idea of revolution, right? Revolution says, like, I'm just going to turn everything over and we're going to start over. Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying all of that stuff that you've been reading, that you've been studying, that's about me. I am the fulfillment. I am the purpose of those things. That's a bold claim to make because Jesus is staking his claim as the Messiah in that moment. But he's also staking his claim to all of the horrors all of the really nasty things that are going to be said about him. In Isaiah 53, we read that Jesus was, or he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. In Psalm 22, David writes, all who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That's an almost word by word delivery of what they're saying to Jesus at this point. Psalms 22 uh, also bemoans, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And again, we see that as Jesus hangs on the cross, the Roman guards are casting lots to divide his clothing among them. 
And it's not just in these verses here, right? We can see Jesus fulfilling the prophets across of his life and across this passage. We could spend hours doing that, and we're not going to, so don't worry. Um, Psalm 22 speaks the words again that Jesus utters near the moment of his death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Crucified with criminals, being given vinegar to drink, being buried with the rich. All of these things are mentioned in the Old Testament and in every detail. They are coming to fruition here in Mark 15. I think the detail that really stands out to me, though, the thing that kind of puts the best point on this is when Mark notes that the sign over Jesus' head reads, King of the Jews. If we go to the crucifixion account in John, kind of skip forward a few books, in John 19, we see that this inscription kind of angered the Pharisees when they saw that it was above him. They went back to Pilate saying, hey, don't say that. He's not the king of the Jews. Say, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate responds here by saying, what I have written, I have written. But there's another way that um, scholars have interpreted this phrase. Pilate says, what I have written will always be written. What a statement of God's grand design in this moment that every little detail testifies to his work, especially that Pilate would just kind of accidentally confirm Jesus' true title in the hour of his humiliation and his crucifixion. And what encourages me about this picture of God's plan is the knowledge that God is actively working in every single detail, both in this story and in all of our stories. There's a saying that I'm sure you're all familiar with that says, don't miss the forest for the trees, that suggests that, you know, we shouldn't be missing the bigger picture by focusing too much on the details. But the beauty of God's plan is that he doesn't miss the forest or the trees, right? He sees it all, and he's actively working at every single moment in your life. Even the ones that you think are too mundane, too insignificant. Man, I, 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 it's, I'm getting ready for work in the morning. God can't, God can't use this. I'm, I'm, I'm just driving to work. God doesn't care about this. He doesn't miss anything. In his omniscience, God set a plan in place for your redemption and your salvation. He is a God of grand plans and a God of the smallest details. Take comfort in that. He sees you and he knows every part of you and he counts it all as important in the story that he's telling. Now, as we see that the father put this work in place to be fulfilled, let's go back to Mark chapter 15 and read in verses 33 through 37 as we examine how the glory of the crucifixion, the glory of this pre-planned work is accomplished through God the Son's persevering love. Again, in Mark chapter 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. In these verses, we see the focus of Mark's writing kind of shift back to Jesus, away from the things that are happening around him. And of course, Jesus has been the focal point of Mark's book. And like I said earlier, one of my favorite things about reading the Gospels is we get to see the humanity of our Savior on full display. He eats with people. He gets tired. He has strong emotions that drive him into action, not sinfully, but, but they drive him nonetheless. 
The good news of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is that we have a God who understands us because he lived with us. He came down to us to commune with us, even though we had no right to expect that of him, to demand that of him. Jesus, in this moment, displays his humanity in a very specific way here in these verses as he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's consider for a moment that Jesus is part of the triune God, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he has been in perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit forever. There was no beginning to that communion. There will be no end to it. Always perfect communion together. And when we consider that, it doesn't just become, you know, heartbreaking. It becomes relatable in a way. Because in this moment, Jesus knows what it's like to be separate from the Father, to have no connection, to have no hope, some, a place that we were all at at one point. And this is particularly troubling to think when you consider that, you know, before we knew God, before God regenerated your heart, we had no context for what it meant to be separated from God, right? We were just dead people living our lives. Um, We were saved by his grace of his loving will. And now we will never have to not know the riches of his loving care. Jesus, on the other hand, knew loving communion with the Father and the Spirit. And he knew it in a more perfect way than like we ever will. And then he had it taken away from him. In this moment, Jesus is experiencing the human condition that we all are born into of separation from the Father, but in a unique and kind of existentially terrifying way. In his writings on this passage, N.T. Wright, the famous theologian, says the following. It's going to be up on the screen. Evil greater than the sum of its parts cut him off from the one he called Abba in a way he had never known before. And welling up from this lifetime of biblically-based prayer, there came as though by a reflex a cry, not of rebellion, but of despair and sorrow. The question of Job, why do the innocent suffer, mingles with the question of the psalmist and becomes the question that God the Son uses when forsaken unthinkably by God the Father. In this moment of intense physical and mental and spiritual suffering, Jesus' cry becomes very similar to ours in the questions we ask when nights seem darkest and when valleys seem lowest. Um, God, where are you? Why, like, where have you gone? Why am I alone? Except we can know through context, we're not alone and we never will be. Jesus was removed from this communion. He was truly forsaken, cast aside and removed from the Father and the Spirit so that we would never have to be. What could have driven him to face the magnitude of the separation and torment in this moment other than his desire for us to know what it felt like to be in communion with him? And I love that in this last moment of Jesus's life, the focus is just on him. That in these final seconds, we see him cry, which we know from John's account would be the words, it is finished. And then perhaps knowingly just breathe his last breath, let it pass into the air. The focal point in this moment is Jesus. And, you know, it's easy, like I said, to get wrapped up in the surrounding details, the brutality of of the Romans that, that shocks us and kind of wakes us up. 
the mocking and tormenting of the crowd that kind of stirs our blood and gets us enraged or the cries of his followers that kind of invoke our sorrow. But guys, the glory of the crucifixion isn't found in what's happening around Jesus. It's found in Jesus. It's found in the fact that Jesus chose to live amongst the people who would reject him, who would mock him. That he chose to serve and to love these people. To be rejected and die as a common criminal, all for their sake. All for your sake. Right? Only Jesus could have accomplished this divine work of the Father. And he did it because he loved you. That's it. Not because of what you did to like earn his, his favor. Not because of what the, the good thing that you did that one time. That God was like, oh man, they're worthy now. He saw you at your worst moment. He was like, them, they're mine. As we consider the persevering love that Jesus has for his church, let's return once more uh, to Mark 15 and verses 38 through 47. We're going to explore how this glory of the Father's work and the Son's accomplishment is shared now by the unexpected revelation of the Holy Spirit. Again, in verses 38 through 47, on the screen. <clears throat> And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Well, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud. And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Um, in this final part of our passage this morning, just after Jesus breathes his last, again, we see the narrative of Mark shift back to what is happening around Jesus um, again, Mark moves back to pointing out kind of little details, little highlights of this moment, both strange and, you know, some that are seemingly ordinary. Details that we'll see emphasize how the Spirit is working and sharing the glory of this crucifixion. He's revealing it to the people around him. We can see, um, we can kind of break this passage down into, I think, four key details. These, like, these ten verses, I think. Four details that show the Spirit revealing the glory of the crucifixion. The first is, and it's the very first thing, is that the curtain tears in two. The curtain here referring to the veil that in the tabernacle would have separated um, the holy place, which is, you know, where common worship happened, from the inner holy of holies, which is where God dwelt within the temple. Now, there's a lot of speculation that you may have heard in your life or that you can find online that, you know, this curtain was so thick that even like a horse couldn't have torn it in two. Um, we don't know if that's true. There's not really a whole lot biblically to say whether that's true. But we do know this. The, the veil was huge. It was of immense size. It was 30 feet tall to allow for full coverage 
between these two spaces. It was woven with fine blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linen. It says this in 2 Chronicles 3. We know it also kind of had decorations of the cherubim kind of worked into the weaving, perhaps signifying that there's a powerful force protecting a sinful people from the just like all-encompassing holiness of God. The tearing of this veil would, of course, been notable because they use it um, ceremonially. But the tearing of the curtain, of course, also signals that God is no longer separated from his people. Through the mediating person of Jesus Christ, God rips this curtain open and proudly allows all, not just the high priests, to come to him. And I love this picture, this If you think about this beautiful, like, huge veil that's kind of almost like the Sistine Chapel that I mentioned earlier. It's this stunning piece of art, um, and it's ornately woven, but it's also kind of cold and ceremonious. It's this garish barrier between a loving God and the children who need him. I love this picture of God just tearing it down and saying, I'm not going to be separated from them anymore. There's no mistaking here that this is the Spirit announcing the glory of the crucifixion in a strange and kind of dramatic way. The second of these four details that we see in this part of the passage, the confession of the Roman centurion. You have to remember that this is a Roman soldier. This isn't like Hollywood where we get to see his backstory, you know, and he's like, he's like following Jesus and he's like, yeah, I really don't know. No, this is a Roman soldier who was on duty. He oversaw crucifixions. He was used to the grisly details that were taking place. It was an everyday occurrence to him, just like you, you know, go type up spreadsheets or, or move, uh, I'm sorry, I can't think of anything else, but move barrels from place to place, Joseph. Um, this is an everyday occurrence for him. This is routine. Um, we get this picture of this hardened, kind of resolute man who's just like, yep, another day at the office. And he's someone who is too familiar, all too familiar with the grief and the horror and the trauma of what would happen when he was witnessing an event like this. And yet, we also see him become one of the only people in Mark's gospel to truly grasp and confess Jesus' identity. Now, there are quite a few ways that this confession that he gives is interpreted by different scholars, you know, that the centurion experienced this genuine moment, this, like, divine revelation of profound faith. Some people think he may have had just kind of an incomplete understanding, but in this moment believed anyway because of the power of what was happening around him. Regardless, though, Mark notes this is this is a confession no matter what. In this moment, the spirit is speaking the truth of Jesus' identity through the lips of a Roman soldier, the very man who is overseeing and carrying out the crucifixion of Jesus. What a strange and glorious picture of hope here, right? That one of the chief actors in the heat of the moment and just seconds after his last breath is standing before him and confessing, this is the son of God, right? And in this moment, God, you know, doesn't tear him. He doesn't like kind of strike him down or anything. He uplifts him as the one revealing this truth in the scriptures, in the, in the divine spirit-inspired scriptures. We see the Roman soldier is the one who is delivering this news, how much more will he welcome you who have been saved, who have been brought into his kingdom, who is a co-heir with Jesus? The third detail I want to note here that um, exemplifies the Spirit's revelation here is the presence and the witness of the women. Um, Mark says here that a group of women were looking on, among whom are some characters that 
will become important in the resurrection account, some of which we've heard from uh, throughout the story of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and the mother of James, who was one of Jesus' disciples. Of course, this is establishing the fact that these women were present for the entirety of Jesus' death and his burial. They saw where he was buried, and therefore it is establishing their credibility as a witness to this event and the resurrection that is coming. And you may have heard before that this is kind of a strange position for the biblical account to take, because women at this point were not really regarded as worthy witnesses. But still, the Spirit is revealing these truths to them and is upholding them as the ones on whom this account will be trusted. With these women, too, we see a picture of faithful members of the church before you know the church is even established. It's said here that these women followed Jesus and they ministered to him, or as it could be understood, they assisted him with his ministry by providing you know, goods and, and, and services to the disciples and to Jesus as they did their ministry. They're singled out as these faithful, loving, but grieving followers of Jesus into and following his death. What love they must have had for Jesus to continue this ministry even until death, as many of his disciples who worked with him and who lived with him turned and ran the other way. And what an example for us as we continue to run our races, knowing what they didn't know, knowing that the, two, the stone is going to be rolled away, that the work doesn't end at the crucifixion, but continues on in the resurrection. And our fourth and final detail here is the actions of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, Joseph, as it says here, was actually well known among the religious elite, the very people who were putting Jesus to death here. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, or what you may understand is the, the body of rabbis and elders that tried Jesus before his very public execution. You know, they kind of carried him away in the night and did this, public, or this private trial before they gave him up. But Joseph is depicted here as a man who is pursuing the kingdom, but he still served as a secret follower of Jesus. He wasn't quite willing to take that public step because of his status. But in this moment, he just kind of throws caution to the wind and insists that you know, Jesus has to be buried in what was probably his family tombs. Joseph was rich and he was respected. He was everything that Jesus kind of warned against when he was speaking of the kingdom of God. But even still, Mark notes this detail. It's a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah 53, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And it's a reminder that the kingdom is, in fact, for anyone who's willing to come to Jesus. In this moment, the Spirit is working through Joseph, who is likely taking on some considerable risk by legitimizing Jesus with his own status, and he makes him a part of this story. I'll admit that um, this detail is probably the most challenging thing for me and what it signifies to my heart. Um, you've, if you've heard me preach before, you know that one of the things I get fired up most about in my, in when I read Scripture is warnings to the rich and the powerful those who would gatekeep the kingdom of God from the poor and the oppressed. But this point, this moment in scripture kind of forces me to look at myself and think, how often does my anger kind of turn to gatekeeping of a different kind, right? How often do we as Christians look at those, which is anybody who the spirit just could reveal himself to and say, no, nah, not them. They're not good enough. They're not holy enough. They don't do the things that the Bible says. They couldn't possibly be saved. Thank God that the, you know, the Spirit sees more than we do, that he sees the heart. We would all be pretty poor judges if it was just up to our preferences and the rules that we consider the most important. 
As we wrap up this morning, I want to acknowledge that it's easy to hear a story like the crucifixion, even one that's like very powerful and very important, and just to kind of come away sort of numb and be like, yep, yeah, that's crucifixion. Um, again, it's a story we tell each other all the time. We hear it at Easter. We hear it apparently before Thanksgiving now. Um, and it's easy for our eyes to just glaze over and for our hearts to grow cold. I'm constantly thanking God that, you know, his love for me isn't dictated by the passion that I have for him. Because, man, I'd be a dead man walking if that was the case. Um, but no matter where you are today, um, whether you're feeling kind of like dry bones or whether you're feeling the tenderness and the grace of God in a very real and tangible way, I want to remind you that the glory of the crucifixion, the way it was planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, revealed by the Spirit, they're not just divine works that, you know, are left at the cross. This isn't a one-off story that, you know, we read and it makes us feel good and we have some points to take away through the rest of the week. These same divine works are happening in your life on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. God, the Father knows you and he is working in and behind the everyday details of your life because he loves you and he considers you his child who is worthy of that sort of care. God the Son persevered at the cross and he is persevering at the right hand of the Father on your behalf because he loves you and he considers you worth persevering for. God the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, revealing the truths of who Christ is and creating a heart that is more and more like his because he loves you and considers you worthy of being made like Christ. Again, not because of you know, what you've done or all the ways that you've obeyed him or disobeyed him, but just because God said them, they're mine. The glory of the crucifixion is found in the work of the Trinity in this passage and in the fact that we are now called worthy children of the King because of that work and that it continues on in our lives. Let's pray. God, I, I confess that even when I was preparing for this, this passage, this sermon, um, I found my heart dry and just kind of empty. God, it's, like I said, it's easy to read these stories just over and over again and say, yeah, I know that, yeah, I know that, I get it. But there is value in reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel, of, of, of repeating them to ourselves, even when we don't feel like they're landing or doing anything. But God, um, I'm also reminded by reading the story of the crucifixion that only you could have done this work. There's no way we could have planned something like this. And even if we could have, there's no way we could have accomplished it. And there's no way that we could have revealed it. Because if we were left, if we were left to our own devices and revealing it, we would just be selfish with it and we would hide it within ourselves. But Lord, you are growing your kingdom how you see fit. You are doing the work through a people who are stubborn and stiff-necked, but that you love and call your own. I pray that as we consider the truths of the crucifixion this morning, that the glory of what you were doing and what you did and what you planned would become very real to us. 
And that even if they don't, you know, drive us to a moment of emotional, I don't know, truth or revelation, that they would sink in and that they would continue changing us so that when we reach the end of our race, Lord, that we would see the work that you have done. We would see the Ebenezer's that you have put in our lives. And all we would be able to see was say would be, thank you, Jesus, for the work you did at the cross. And we would see the glory in it even at that moment and throughout eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.